This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Any book that Walter Mosley calls sublime is a book for me. And any novel that nods to the noir world of Raymond Chandler, while at the same time invoking the name Roberto Bolaño, makes it irresistible. In Honest Living, the novel from Miami's own Dwyer Murphy is just that. If you love New York City, books and bookstores, this one is for you. As a bonus, you get a very smart recovering lawyer as a PI and a mystery that belies the fact that this is a debut. Dwyer knows and loves all things crime, fitting for someone who edits the brilliant Crime Reads newsletter from Lit Hub. And I welcome Dwyer as my guest on this edition of The Literary Life. Our conversation was recorded prior to a reading live and in person at Books and Books in Carl Gables. Dwyer Murphy, welcome to The Literary Life. It's great to have you uh, here at Books and Books, so we thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is a real treat. This is... uh my new home store and I, you know, I really, I wasn't, yeah, I want to talk to you a little bit about that. I mean, your new book in honest living in many ways is kind of a love letter to New York city in, in, in so many different ways. And now you're living in Miami. So tell me what that's like for you. It has been, it's kind of strange because obviously this book has an elegiac tone and it's sort of written with a nostalgia for a city that is in the process of disappearing and in the middle of that, I have, after 16 years, left New York City myself. So this was mostly written while I was kind of in the process of thinking about whether I was going to stay in New York or leave. And so I imagine a lot of that tone kind of seeped its way in and also allowed me to dwell on the strange little pockets of New York that I loved while I was thinking about potentially leaving them. Now, did you do most of the writing in the city while you were living there? Yeah, I think almost probably all of this was written while I was still there and then maybe some revision while I was temporarily down in Miami, but I was still there throughout it and, you know, <laughs> got the sort of fun process of during the the copy editing, the fact checking actually, you know, it's a detective novel, so the character is out on the streets and there's this tradition and the the Chandler sense you got to name the streets that you're on. So so set the scene Tell us what the novel's about. So we've got kind of a washed out lawyer living in New York circa 2005 who has left a corporate law firm job and is kind of making ends meet in the neighborhood doing random little assignments and cases for his neighbors. And he kind of gets drawn into a larger literary mystery where a novelist or a, a would-be novelist shows up at his house and 
draws him into this case where he's supposed to be following her husband around. It's a lot of kind of noir tropes there. And he slowly realizes that he's, he's being sucked into the plot of Chinatown and it kind of has taken over his life. And he has to, to navigate these classic noirs with uh, the help of a few sidekicks and accomplices. Yeah, he's absolutely doing that. And, but, but what I love about it is that it's just very natural. He's just naturally doing it without right. being self-conscious about it, right? Right. It seems to me that, I mean, it's really hard to write a PI novel with an actual PI these days. A few people do it. I know like Patrick Hoffman is a practicing PI who writes beautiful fiction with, you know, private eyes sometimes factor in. But I'm not, I've worked with a few private eyes when I was a lawyer. I would do sort of... I was an IP lawyer, so I would go on these stings occasionally where we would try to catch counterfeiters and I would be lurking around on the side while the PIs did the actual work. I always enjoyed that. But, you know, it's hard to write a novel where a PI is believably at the center of a mystery and the tradition of, I was reading like the Ross McDonald Lou Archer novels when I was writing this and that was kind of the tradition I wanted to tap into. And so I thought maybe a lawyer who's kind of, just trying to do small jobs in neighborhood cases, that that might be a kind of stand-in for a private eye in a believable way. And somebody who would also believably be just a bookish person in New York who likes hanging around bookstores and hanging around with artists and poets and doesn't mind getting paid with a painting or a meal every once in a while. Well, it sounds to me as if it's a lawyer that might be patterned after someone you know, because it's a lawyer who was kind of a, um, who's involved in big time, with a big time firm, yeah. right, in New York doing, yep. in fact, he resigns after a big case that he wins, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, that was based loosely on uh, one of the last big cases that I litigated. Uh, it was a sort of I have to be careful because I, when I'm, you know, a lawyer, you naturally think about, okay, what can I disclose? What can't I? What's fictional? What's not? So I've blurred the lines in my own memory, but I'll describe the fictional case in which he decides to hang up his law career. And the people who listen out there who know me can decide how closely it resembles the actual case that I did uh, was credit card companies fighting over who owned the color black. And he kind of has a midnight discovery that helps them win this case. And they're out at a tasting menu at an extravagant meal celebrating their victory. And they decide to give him as a gift because often if you, after a big case, they kind of present you with these little souvenirs to thank you. You know, somebody else gets the money, but you as the associate get some little souvenir. And they, uh, they're giving out baseball bats, a, a black baseball bat, the color they've just decided they own. And it's got his name on it, supposedly, and he looks at it, and it's not quite the right name. Uh, and that's when he decides, I've got to, I'm done, I've got to leave. And I, part of that is quite closely based on my own exit from corporate law and a very, a very similar incident, let's say. And part of that is also playing on the Chinatown uh, thing that keeps happening, which is that Jake Giddies keeps having his name mistaken by everybody. They just uh, slightly off, you know, John Houston keeps calling him Giddies and yeah, he keeps correcting the pronunciation, but I like that. It's just a little way to kick your PI when he's down to remind him that he's a little, he's a little lower than the people he's moving among. Well, but the, and the character throughout the entire book responds really badly to arrogance. <laughs> yeah. And I, I couldn't see him as a member of that law firm even beyond this case. Um, well, it's a literary law firm, I will say. So the, the the law firm that it's based on, I went there specifically because it had this 
bizarre literary tradition in New York where it was the father of George Plimpton. It was his George Plimpton's father's right. firm. It was the family's firm in a lot of ways. And that's where I presume a lot of their money continued to come from. Uh, and besides that, there were other novelists and writers working at the firm. Louis Begley, who was a great novelist, uh, was an, a working partner at the firm when I was there. And you could just kind of pop down or pop up three floors to go check that's, in, and he would be working on you know somebody's merger uh, and you know in the midst cool. of writing National Book Award winning novels. Right, but but as a but as a lawyer, you felt so much more, or the character also feels so much more at home in a truly literary world. Absolutely, the world I mean, of bookstores, the world of book dealers, that whole world. Yeah, for all I'm complimenting the law now. I don't know why I do that. I hated it. I hated practicing. And, no, no, you're talking to me. I'm a recovering, what I call I know, a recovering law student. Exactly. <laughs> I just, I only went for two years. I never quite finished. You got out. I, I would have been in your good. very same. I couldn't get it. The law, the, the debts they put on you are so exorbitant yeah. now that, you know, once I think I probably realized a year into law school that... I'd much rather be a writer. Or an well, did you start? Were you in, like an English major in? No, I had studied to be a diplomat uh, when I was uh, in undergrad, and then went straight to law school and took on this mountain of debt. And the only way to work it off is to go is to one to of practice. these corporate firms, really. Right. And so I needed to do that as quickly as possible, while also realizing that what I really wanted was to be a writer. Was the writing always part of your life? Or? I grew up in a bookstore, sort of my father had a university bookstore and we were, we were a book family. So I was always around that. I think I had a, maybe a, a more utilitarian relationship with books because I was working on his loading dock all the time. And kind Which of, bookstore was that? It was Bridgewater State College uh, in Massachusetts, about 20 minutes. Those were the days of the indie university bookstores. Right. And, it was a nice place to to grow up, a nice environment to grow up in, and it was you know it taught you a lot about books and gave you this you know sort of chance to be close to them. But it also meant that you know I'd spend eight nine hours a day just unloading boxes from a loading dock, and so you have a very strange relationship to books. I'm sure you know that you know when it's your your life, it becomes something a little different, and maybe the romance comes and goes, right? The romance does come and go, but you do feel like you're part of something. You've you've joined the passion economy exactly. as much as anything else. And that's the thing that I wanted to sort of explore in this novel is that New York in this era felt very much like a city full of used bookshops and movie houses. And there were all these little communities of obsessives, aficionados that moved between them and that was the new york i wanted to be a part of i mean going to law school there was almost incidental i just wanted to go to new york so that i could go to the film forum and angelica and sunshine and all these theaters and then afterwards i could pop into a bookstore and then we could go to the diner and show each other what we bought and talk about the movies that we had seen and that's the new york that i wanted to be a part of really it's sad to see it disappearing isn't it? the movie houses especially i mean there's a lot of good bookstores there not as many used bookstores obviously but you know the bookstore scene is is good but the movie house has got it's yeah it's just been decimated by the pandemic to write this kind of novel you need to be a walker and you need to absolutely yeah. know how to walk a city it reminds me of that book a walker in the city yeah and i used to walk the city and i literally would start in the upper west side and I would literally walk all the way down and stop in every single bookstore on right. the way and then go up the east side and then cross over 
on the park. And most of the bookstores that I remember going to are gone right now. There were all of these art bookstores yeah. that were, you know, Yap Ritman on the second floor and Untitled, Madison Avenue bookstore. The art bookstores especially were great, right? Because that's how you saw art. If you weren't going to go to a museum, how else were you going to see the it art? It was the only way to see, you know, art, architecture, design, photography. Right. There was no internet. So there was no way anybody could see anybody's work but through books. Right. We're sitting in the middle of a beautiful art book room right now, so yeah. it feels especially appropriate. But that was that's how you discovered art, right? But what I felt was really beautiful about this book is even though that it was in the 2000s, you captured even a period older. Than it that. felt like that was sort of, I, I mean, I think of 2008 as kind of a dividing point between Either you could call it the analog and digital era for the city, or maybe it had something to do with the economic collapse that happened around then. But that's about the point. To me, when I set this novel, it was 2005, 2006, and there were various reasons for it having to do with the plot and other things. But really, it was to me, it felt like that last era where people weren't walking around with a smartphone in their pocket and didn't have the internet to take with them everywhere. The internet existed, but it wasn't an enormously important part of my life in that era. For example, I was thinking I used to leave every time I left my apartment in East Williamsburg, I would take a series of little maps I had drawn and put them in my pocket because those are the neighborhoods. So I'd have a little map that I had drawn of the Lower East Side and one of the East Village so that I would remember where, where bars were that I might want to go to wow. that night. Because how else were you going to do it, you know? And like you wanted to meet your friends and you know, okay, well, my friends are going to be at Roubaix near Tompkins Square Park that maybe, or maybe they'll be at this other place. And you just kind of, you spent so much of your time looking for your friends, right? That's it. That felt like a mystery novel in itself, that feeling of being in your 20s. You don't know where your friends are. You don't have any good way of getting in touch with them anymore because you're all out and about for the night. And so you're just kind of wandering around the city like a gumshoe looking for your buddies. Well, you capture that beautifully. I mean, that is what an honest living is. That is. When you asked me before what the book is, that's really the the feeling of it is it's, you know, it's 1030 on a Thursday night and just, you're looking for your friends. You're looking for your friends. You want to have a drink and then you run into somebody right. who was an artist. I mean, I love the different ancillary characters that you had, the artists, you know. Thank the, you. That's, the, the, to one, me, that's... The, the woman who then left because she had a show going on in right. Europe. I forget her name. Yeah, I don't think she has a name. In, oh, she, no, Siomara Fuentes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Siomara. Yeah, his ex, who's an artist, his ex. left. Right. There's a no, lot I of mean, artists coming in and out. Artists coming and going, writers coming and going. And everybody sort of disappears or reappears in the way that they, when you're in your 20s, that kind of happens suddenly. You know, your roommates are suddenly, they've moved out and you don't know what happened. You know, there are some amazing writers who've talked about your book, including... Walter Mosley, who called it Sublime, and a number of others. And as at, you channeled, you know, I mean, you channeled the Raymond Chandlers, the Ross McDonalds. I mean, I felt like I was in their world. I felt like I was in another kind of world, that world that was a very analog world. I associated with the analog yeah. kind of a world, you know, where there's so much by chance that happens. I love the, I, I love those in those novelists and that feeling where something that a private eye novel can do that I feel like maybe people don't appreciate who aren't, you know, committed to it is that it gives you this incredible entree into all these different little 
worlds, these different pockets. So when you're at the beginning of a Ross McDonald, Lou Archer novel, he always gets summoned to a lawyer's office somewhere in Santa Teresa. And like he's, you know, he's, you have this feeling of I'm about to discover these new pockets of the city, of the culture I'm in and discover something about the power structure of how things work. And the way it's going to be done is by this guy who's a little rough around the edges, just opening another door and walking into another room and finding out who's inside and asking them some questions. And and it's really, it's as much about tone and atmosphere right. and history and milieu as it is about a mystery. It's all of those things. To, I mean, there's the famous Chandler bit, the, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't know who killed the chauffeur. And, the, you know, the, it's the plot... You know, you want the plot to hang together and to be reasonably satisfying, but I think the tone and the atmosphere are everything in these novels. And it's about the way these characters navigate their world and one another, right? And that's what gives these books their electricity, their chemistry. It's, it's a lot of fun. And you know, it's interesting because when we opened the bookstore in 1982, Miami was known very similarly as a place where writers who were writing that way yep. were settled. Right. So you had the Charlie Willifords, for instance, where it was really about tone and oh, sensibility more Williford, than it was Burnt about Orange Heresy, to me, was that's like the great art world sort of crime novel thriller. Completely. That's, or, you know, even his trilogy, I mean, Miami Blues, yeah. with that dark sense of humor and... And so it was all, you know, it was, and then, you know, even before then, I remember discovering as a bookseller, I wonder if you, there's a writer that always stuck in my mind and, and you don't hear anything about him now, he's probably dead, but he was an Irish writer named Patrick McGinley. Oh, no. Did you ever know him at no. all? He wrote these kind of crazy, kind of very Irish novels that I, I used to call when I would try to hand sell it, I would go, this is a novel with murder. <laughs> okay yeah you know what i mean it's, right of course it's really it was about these small irish villages and then there was a murder that happened right it wasn't really a cozy <laughs> but it wasn't really hard-boiled either it was really kind of a social novel right about this place and i, I got i always felt like some of the miami writers were the people who wrote who were living in miami at the time also did similar kinds of things right because they're capturing a certain atmosphere that in south florida in a lot of ways i think inherited that la tradition of you know it's not hard-boiled always feels like maybe a little i don't know if it's the right word for it obviously it's we all know which authors we're talking about when we talk about hard-boiled but there's a certain wit to it the way they see the world that it isn't all dark and doom and gloom and trying to say the 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 hard bitten thing it's really about i i mean i think all of those detectives the la detectives and the south florida crime novels it's about a sort of seeing the world full of hustlers and operators and romantics and dreamers and you know that type of attitude towards the world to me always is what ties all those different crime novels together. And it's also trying, it's also operating in a style that kind of matches the environment. Exactly. And the style is everything for those, not all of yeah. those novels, right? It's, I mean, when I kind of say a wit to them, that's really what I'm talking about because to me, almost style and wit are almost synonymous in a lot of these novels, right? There is something about the, 
turns of thought from one sentence to the next that there's no joke on the page, but there's something clever and unusual about the trains of thought and the connection of ideas that makes you want to laugh or chuckle, right? Because you, you suddenly realize this is an interesting person I'm reading here. That's so well put. When you mentioned the kind of side characters before, I was going to say that, yeah, I know he's not strictly a South Florida writer, but Elmore Leonard is my favorite. And to me, I was trying to do justice with some of these side characters. There's always this anecdote about Leonard that I love that he, when he was inventing new characters, he would put them on the page and then find out whether they could talk. And if they could talk, he'd give them a little bit more story. And if they couldn't talk, he'd kill them. And that was how you earned your, your space on the page as a character. Can, can you come in and mix things up and tell a story? And I, you know, that's one of the nice things about a good crime novel is there is this expectation that the side characters are going to come in with a little electricity of their own and shake things up and tell a story, maybe hijack the narrative for a minute. Yeah, no. And, 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 and when you talk about place, even though he didn't live primarily in South Florida, but I think his La Brava to me, is one of the great South Beach, absolutely, you know, uh, Miami novels. What could be more evocative of a place and a time yeah. than that? And it's right? a place that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. So someone is going to read this ten years from now, your book, and they're going to go, "What happened to that New York?" Right. You know, even you know what happened? It's gone. And that's when I read a La Bravo or I read Elmore Leonard. I go, "Where is my? Where is the place that I that I knew so well?" Right. And I guess the same thing happens with, you know, Raymond Chandler and people reading about Los Angeles and right. that whole period as well. I mean, that's why Chinatown maybe is so powerful too, right? Because it's a neo-noir. It's not a. Right. It's not in the classic tradition, but it is about a version of that city that was actively disappearing in the time it was set. And in the time it was made in the 70s, you know, people had, it wasn't just a yearning for it, but a, a reflection on what happened to that city. And that's what I... A lot of good noirs are about disappearing cities. I think that was kind of what the conceit here was that in my mind, I was writing a mystery where a person had disappeared. A detective went looking for that person, but found out along the way that what he was really looking for was a vanishing city and like pockets of the city that were just beyond his grasp and leaving. Well, you did it so well. <laughs> I mean, you. I mean, I can tell you, I, I, I read it and I just... The city was swirling around me, and uh, I wish that I had, um, I could recapture some of the bars you were in. And I also loved all the references you made to, obviously, you know, the films and even some of the people that you, you know, you know, Roberto Bolaños and 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 Wally Shawn and all of those folks. Yeah, well. I wanted to make sure that the characters would come in and out of each other's houses and look at what was on the bookshelves. It's something I always want to see on the page because when I go to somebody's house for a dinner or a drink, they invite me over. I'm going to look at what their books are. That's one of the first things I do, right? You get a little window into their soul. And so I thought, I wonder why more people don't wander into a room and a book and just see immediately what's on the shelf. So that was... You know, a lot of the, the literary references that are peppered throughout the story are exactly that. Oh, and how disappointed he was when he wandered into a room and all the books were gone. <laughs> <laughs> An especially horrible feeling. A room that you know should have books right. that is suddenly devoid of them, right? Yeah, that you no, can no. feel it, that they were supposed to be there. And also, I love the, you had a great sidekick, and I'm forgetting his, my memory oh, is so he's, so good. Oh, so he has named himself after a Bolaño character, so it's Ulysses Lima. Yeah, it's fantastic. And yeah, he's... Uh, Partly, 
he, so the, the idea is he's, you know, a Venezuelan poet who brings our narrator a lot of his casework because he's kind of working on the margins of the, of the art world. And so his friend, who's an established poet in New York, is, just keeps delivering him people to, to sort of bring into a new so case. So I, I think if I didn't misread it, I think you kind of set him up for the next book, right? Yeah, there's going to the be end of this. There's going to be a sequel where there'll be a little bit more in the art world. Yep, probably. and it'll be down here. So, uh, oh, good. The, a, a couple of choice characters, those two that you've just mentioned, will be will be bringing their story down to. Because you mentioned at the end the character who doesn't yeah. keep his receipts and he needs right. help and. He doesn't have a passport or something. Yeah, or, there's there's a little nod to maybe a future case, and it will eventually bring them down to Florida. Is the so that'll be in hopefully two years from now if everything keeps according to to plan. I've got another one next summer, a heist novel that'll be out uh, next summer, and that'll be a standalone, and then we'll continue the series so the year after. Yeah, it's you're developing. An amazing character. That, that well, thank you. That's so. It's nice of you to say, and it's just, you know, it's it's a fun way to to think for me about just the art world and art and literature. It's a it's a nice excuse. So to those get are into it. those are two different. They're not different, but those are two aspects of your life. There's art, obviously, right. that you're extremely interested in, and then there's also there's also books and, and writing. So t tell me the art side of it. Where did that all come from? Well, the art side of it is just because it's such an extravagantly opulent and sometimes corrupt or illusionary world, right? That art, I've, I, I really love the fact that the art world, so much of it is just kind of made up and fancy that when I, and I'm speaking specifically about the prices that are attached to art or the sort of complicated financial structures that you find, like a hedge fund backed by, you know, uh, assets that are ultimately artworks, you know, where the, the numbers that are attached to these things are just so completely off the charts expensive that it's, they're almost nonsense, right? And it's really more about a fetish item. And in that sense, to me, I mean, I love the Maltese Falcon and you, that's the ultimate kind of MacGuffin or this, this item, uh, this fetish item, right? And so to me, the art world offers up so many opportunities to create fetish items. In this book, we're kind of mixing them because I, we're in the rare books world where it's sort of uh, in between those two things. They're collectors Very and obsessives. Right. Very specialized. Not only just rare books, but they are kind of like rare case books. Right. And they're sort. almost falling apart in your fingers. Right. They're these true crime pamphlets. So right. trial pamphlets, they're called. Sometimes they're called murder books. You'll hear them by different names. But they were the popular literature of the 19th century printed in very cheap paper handed out all over the country, but a lot of the publishing was done out of Brooklyn, Barclays and Company and some other big names. And they were essentially uh, mostly true, sometimes apocryphal, anecdotal accounts of salacious crimes and trials. And this was really popular stuff. When people talk about a true crime boom today, you sometimes, the response is, this stuff has always been popular. You know, this is always how we were entertained as Americans and British did it too, but not only how we were entertained, but how we kind of learned about ourselves because these were pamphlets that were handed out all over the country and there wasn't a good written account or record of trials during that era. So a lot of what we know about those famous old murders and the trials comes down from these pamphlets that were salacious. And, and is there a marketplace for them? 
there's not as active a marketplace as I depict in the book, but there are some incredible collections of them in New York. The one that I, I mostly spent time with, a little bit at Columbia Law Library, but mostly the New York Historical Society has just a world-class collection of these pamphlets and they bring them to you and sort of wrapped very carefully because, you know, you can touch them, but it feels like they're going to fall apart on yeah. your fingers, you know? And it's, it's wonderful. So mostly I requested New York trial pamphlets. So I'd be looking at all these 1870s to 1890s, really high profile murders where there might be five or six different competing accounts that were put out into the marketplace and maybe one or two of them survived and only a couple of copies of those. And they maybe exist that the New York historical society has one. Columbia has one and some law library out West has one. And there are people who are obsessed with these, things. but it's this beautiful, I don't know if you've been there. No, I never have. It's a beautiful old townhouse. I, feel, I, I don't know if it is, but it feels like a Gilded Age, uh, like type townhouse just off of Central Park West. Wow. And, you know, it's a really beautiful reading room and the librarians there are incredibly knowledgeable. And uh, I believe there is still, there was one woman who is kind of a specialist in these things who really she knew her stuff and could tell you anything you needed to know about them. So it was a lot of fun to do some of that research and kind of dive into the world of people who collect these things and are obsessed with them, you know? So let's talk a little bit about the, the other gig that you have besides being a writer. You're also the editor of what is becoming and has become one of the great, great, basically magazines and yeah. online magazine for crime writing, for crime fiction and also yeah. film. And it's called uh, Crime Reads. Yeah. Talk we, about that a little bit. It's, uh, it is basically become a, a daily culture magazine, I guess, that's built out of and covers the world of crime fiction. And we sort of see crime fiction not really as specific to one medium or another, one format or another. We see it more as just one big culture. So whether it's a movie, a book, a podcast, any, you know, nonfiction, fiction, it's sort of... We bring it all together and we put together this uh, this daily magazine that is for people who really care about this stuff. I think we took as our, we wrote on a, a chalkboard and we were launching it. So originally we were part of, we are part of LitHub, uh, the website. And Tell was, people about LitHub. Lit yeah, Hub. so LitHub is, you know, a, a daily culture website online uh, dedicated to literature in general. And so it's, you know a wildly popular website that is, you know, I, I know that you guys know what it is, but it, it's really heartening to see how popular it is and how many people out there want to, you know, read about literature day to day. Uh, and I was working there. I had originally been hired as the sports editor. We had this idea that we were going to recreate the old Plimpton-esque or Sports Illustrated days of we were going to send novelists to like minor league baseball tryouts and get 5,000 words, you know, and we that would have been fun. It was fun for, you know, a couple of months while we planned it and put out a few commissions. And then we suddenly realized we can't keep this up. There's just not, there's not a big enough market for this kind of stuff. So we pivoted as they say. And around that same time we were looking for something new to launch. And we knew that there was a huge crossover between people who were reading literary fiction and reading crime fiction and that we could develop a new audience and give a, a new audience a home online to kind of come every day and find new stuff, interviews, features, and all that. And you have, uh, I must say, you have treated Florida really, really well. We love Florida. And you have a wonderful writer, Craig Pittman. Who yeah, he's our Florida great, guy, great our man job, in Florida. does an amazing job. 
Yeah, he's so. And when I was moving down here, I kept asking Craig some, you know, for little pieces of advice about how to become a Floridian. But he's he's such a good writer, and he he's kind of developed our Florida beat. But it's because there's such. A, this is one of the meccas of crime fiction in my mind. You know, there's L.A. and there's South Florida to an extent. New York, I think, had a heyday maybe in like, I think of it as the 70s for like Westlake and Lawrence Block when those guys were at their most prolific. Maybe New York crime fiction had its heyday, but really L.A. and Florida feel to me like the the sort of Mecca and Medina of crime fiction. You know, what I've always found fascinating is that, you know, even the most literary of writers, you know, the most elevated literary writers that you know, so many of them are just huge fans of crime fiction. Right. I and mean, you must have found that as well. Yeah. I, the most immediate case that comes to mind is I know Colson Whitehead is in the middle of what is going to be a trilogy uh, of essentially crime heist novels that's a retelling of the sort of modern history of New York. And they're incredible and have all the literary bona fides you could want. And it is essentially a literary project and yet is very informed in and by crime fiction. I know he was, you know, reading those Westlake novels when he was first developing the idea of it. And I think there's something very appealing about telling the story of a place through its crimes, right? There's something very human about that. But I'm even thinking about all of those writers who aren't writing crime stuff. Oh, but, yeah. you know, they're, but, you know, but they admire all of the crime writers because of stylistically right. what they can do. They're, you know, with things that we talked about, the way they handle atmosphere, the way that the way they handle place. I think a lot of people admire that and are able to use it in their own work. Yeah, well. absolutely. I have a character in my book who is kind of an accomplished literary novelist who just keeps talking about why she, she wants to write a crime novel. I think and that has always been my experience in the literary world is that there are a lot of people who admire crime fiction and think, well, it would be nice to write something that had a plot and that just drives forward a little bit, right? <laughs> That's very true. We can't be sitting across from each other without me asking you, what are you reading? Well, I was just in the room here. I was going to buy, and I, I will be buying, a Santiago Gamboa a book. I don't know if you've read him at all, but he's probably... He's a, a Colombian author who's this really interesting place between... They are crime novels or thrillers that he's writing, but they're really more about the Latin diaspora as it has spread through the world. And those are kind of his mean streets, you know, and inevitably he runs into a lot of crime-like problems. In some of his novels, there is a character named Santiago Gamboa, who is the Colombian consulate affairs officer in Bangkok or uh, Mumbai and these different cities. And so it's mm. really about this uh diplomat who gets drawn in in a really interesting way and acts like a private eye but is essentially just kind of adrift in the world of the latin diaspora and is trying to solve problems of colombians abroad and that's one of my my favorite authors and my favorite series and you know he's he's not always europa publishes him here in the u.s but they're not often available in bookstores so i was very glad to see that books and books had a full selection of santiago gamboa now i i i do know that you like a lot of literature and translation. Yeah. But do you also read in the original language? Do you, do you speak Spanish? No. So I 
I'm trying, I speak about the level of Spanish of my two-year-old daughter, uh, <laughs> because she speaks now that we've moved down to Miami, she's exclusively Spanish. So I've had to keep just ahead of her. I read, <laughs> but when I read uh, original, I do read French. So I was, my, probably my favorite author is Patrick Modiano and the, those I, I'm lucky enough to, to read in the original, but uh, my Spanish, I, I love because Spanish crime fiction, if we want to call it crime fiction, to me is, you know, one of the most developed and interesting traditions because it really is a true blend of the literary and the noir and a way of exploring all of these incredible social issues that are happening in Latin America that are tremendously important and breathtakingly difficult to address and all these really talented authors who do them in the somewhat form of crime fiction, you know, I was, so there's Gambo and names some others. Yeah. So I was just picking up another guy. You, you've got a great selection here. So Horacio, Horacio Castellanos Moya is a, a Salvadoran author. I think he was born in Guatemala and he lives maybe in Pittsburgh now, but he's got a book that you've got in there called the dream of the dream of my return. Uh, and to me, that's just a modern masterpiece. The dream of my return. Uh, it is, about a character who is deciding whether to go back home and it sort of develops into a thriller, but is told in this really elegant, wild, maniacal, circular fashion that he keeps sort of doubling back on himself. And a lot of these authors I'm mentioning feel to me like they're sort of descended from Bolaño and they have specifically, I always think of Bolaño as having a few different strands to his family tree, but like distant star to me is a perfect crime novel, Bolaño's Distant Star, and a lot of these authors sort of descend from that. Uh, but I don't know, I love Colombian writers, especially here in Miami. She's not a crime writer at all, but a Colombian-American writer, Patricia Engel, who's actually probably the first one to tell me about Santiago Gamboa. I, I love Patricia's work. The Veins of the Ocean, the, the opening hundred pages beautiful. of that always read to me like another that's another perfect crime novel in a way those opening hundred pages and she's just a, a really gifted writer she is indeed and there's a tradition too of of kind of cuban crime novels as oh well. yeah leonardo padura is yeah. one of my favorites i love him so much there's I, padura there's yeah. uh, is it arianos yeah uh as well yeah there's some really good ones and you know that hopscotch back and forth between miami and havana some of these i'm hoping that Maybe I can convince Padura to let me bring Mario Conde into the the sequel to this that takes place in Miami. I, I, I've been lucky enough to chat with him a few times over the years, and so I'm going to try to convince him to, to lend me Conde, who's one of my favorite characters of all time. I love that stuff. We are fortunate to have you in Miami now. I'm. Uh, you I guys are my cultural well, touchstone here. I cannot wait to read your Miami book. I wonder if you want to read a little from your book, if you have a little of course, section yeah. that you can read from. I'll read right from the opening. I think that sets the noir, the book noir atmosphere for us. I'll just read a tiny selection here. And this obviously begins with a Chandler homage. The The opening line is kind of my, my version of finding Terry Lennox drunk outside of the club. So here we go. The first time I saw Newton Reddick, he was drunk outside the Polkland Society building on East 47th Street. He was leaning against a cart filled with dollar paperbacks, looking pretty jaunty and not at all minding the cold. The Polkland was a private library that had been started during the Gilded Age by a gang of bank clerks who believed reading during their lunch hours 
would make them into Rockefellers and Carnegies. It was still a private library in 2005 and also a scholarly society dedicated to the art, science, and preservation of the book, whatever that meant. Its membership roles included a lot of academics, rare book dealers, and a few unfashionable old money eccentrics who had wandered down from the East 70s on the chance of finding a literary evening. Newton Reddick was one of the book dealers, or had been anyway. I was told he was mainly a collector now. Collector seemed to me an overly polite term, but at least it conveyed the fact he wasn't making any money at it. He was living off his wife, a much younger woman with inherited wealth, to whom he'd been married just under 10 years. That earned him a certain pride of place among the library's members, it appeared. He was holding court outside the Pokeland, leaning against the paperback cart and waving a cigarette around in his free hand, while a trio of red-faced old-timers hugged themselves against the cold and seemed to hang on his every word. His voice, a crisp tenor, bounced off the skyscrapers and carried across the street to where I was standing with a coffee from the bodega on the corner of 5th and 47th. That's great. And for those of you out there who have not yet read An Honest Living, you need to run out and get it from any indie bookstore or uh, bookshop.org or wherever you get your books. Dwyer, thank you for being on Literary Life. And thank you so much for having me. And uh, you'll be seeing a lot more of me in Florida. This is going to be fun. Thank you. Thank you.